listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to begin there. We're also going to be looking at John chapter 4. So if you want to get that one ready as well. Now we're still kind of early into this new year. Um, I saw somebody on Facebook the other day say, uh, I'm always a little slow in coming up with my New Year's resolution. So they were just now kind of starting to, to solidify that. But you know, it, it, it's true, we're still in a new year, we're early in the new year. How many of you are still writing 2017 on your checks, like I am? Yeah, it takes about July, I'll get used to that, right? That's about how long it takes. And, and New Year's is sort of an artificial, you know, time that we look at and say, okay, I can start a new leaf, I can make some changes. God's mercies are new every morning though, aren't they? But we, we kind of use this as a time of year to sort of evaluate ourselves and set some goals and, and try to do some different things. And I really hope this year we can move beyond sort of the superficial New Year's resolutions that people typically make. That we can instead maybe, I mean, sure, decluttering the house is a great thing, right? And, and wanting to, to read more books and, and watch less TV is a noble thing. You know, and of course we need to get healthy and lose weight and exercise and eat right. But, but I like what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. He says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So why not try this year to build a new you from the inside out? Let, let's focus on some qualities. Let's focus on some practices that can hold promise for this life and for the life to come. Last week we looked at how we need to retune our hearts for worship. Worship that is a loving response to God. Worship that's offered in spirit and that's offered truthfully. And, and I presented three ways that we can evaluate and retune our hearts for worship. Think of these as sort of the minimum that we should be striving for. And they were three sort of evaluation questions. Am I worshiping God personally and privately every day? Am I leading my family to worship God regularly at home and at church? And then that's the third question. Am I really committed to gathering together with God's people to worship Him on the Lord's day? Those are some things that we can ask ourselves and keep before us to make sure that we're keeping our hearts tuned to worship God. And once our hearts are retuned to worship God out of love and spirit and in truth, the next thing we need to focus on is refocusing our witness. Now, when I talk about witnessing, evangelism, sharing Jesus, what kinds of thoughts and images come into your mind? Think about that. What kinds of feelings does it elicit? Because for a lot of people, it sort of elicits uh, anxiety and panic, right? Uh, witnessing can be intimidating. It, it can be a little overwhelming, especially if you've got a, a more reserved personality like I do, you know, obviously. So perhaps you worry about coming across as awkward or unsure of yourself, or maybe you worry about not being able to answer the questions somebody might ask you, or maybe you just think, well, if I just try to witness and share the gospel, I'm just going to mess the whole thing up. Well, I've got some news for you there. First of all, you can't make a lost person any more lost, can you? Right? They're already lost. They're already spiritually dead. You, you can't make that any worse, right? So, so don't worry about it. You're not going to mess it up, okay? But, but you know, maybe, maybe you picture in your mind like the street corner preacher out there banging his Bible, right? And you think, I don't want to be like that. 
I don't want to be some kind of a Jesus freak. I don't want to be like some door-to-door salesman just being pushy and trying to close the deal. Well, what if I could tell you that witnessing doesn't have to be that way? I mean, if that's the way witnessing is, then no wonder people feel anxious about it, right? And people kind of panic at the idea. It's no wonder you feel guilty about not doing that. I mean, because you you know that people are lost and they're going to hell and you love people and you want them to be saved and you know that you should want to be excited and proud about sharing about Jesus. But if that's what witnessing is, I wouldn't want any part of it either. But what if witnessing isn't about making a sale or shouting down an atheist or even having all the right answers? What if being a witness isn't about memorizing or perfectly... Uh, presenting this memorized presentation? What if that's not what witnessing is about? What if any Christian in this room can effectively witness regardless of how much you know the Bible and regardless of your personality type? We need to refocus our vision of what it means to be a witness. And the first thing we need to refocus on is what we are called to do. We are called to make disciples. That's the calling. Jesus doesn't call us to win the lost. He doesn't call us to make converts to Christianity. He calls us to make disciples. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because Jesus has the authority, therefore... We are sent to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. And Jesus said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He gives us His authority. He gives us His presence. In Acts 1.8, He tells us that He will give us His power as the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So Jesus gives us everything we need to be witnesses and make disciples. He gives us His authority, His presence, His power. What more do we need? And then He sends us to go and make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? It's not really a a common term that we use in American vernacular. But in ancient Israel, disciple was a student, a learner who followed after a rabbi. And learn from that rabbi, from that Jewish religious teacher, and absorbed his teachings and walked in his footsteps. And think about it today, a a better term might be apprentice. Think about an apprenticeship where you're wanting to learn a craft, a trade, a skill, and so you sort of job shadow somebody. You go along with them and they teach you the ins and the outs. They pass on to you their skill, their knowledge, maybe in, in, in carpentry or in sculpting or in, in some, something like that. They pass that on to you. So a Christian disciple is someone who chooses to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ, to learn from Him the craft of living life well, of living life to the fullest, to the glory of God. Jesus told His disciples, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to eternal life, the only way into the Father's presence is through Him. So if we want to know God, if we want to spend eternity with God, then we follow Jesus. So let's kind of work with this. Here's sort of a a, a quick little summary definition of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus Christ 
who has committed him or herself wholly to believe on Jesus' truth, to walk in Jesus' way, and to live by Jesus' life. That's what it means to be a disciple. And if we're going to refocus our vision of what it means to be a witness, well, the first thing we have to do is we have to answer the call to be disciples. We have to answer the call to be disciples. That's the first call we need to make sure and answer. Jesus calls us to follow Him first. So the first thing I want to ask you this morning is, are you saved and secure in your own relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Because being a Christian is about far more than just saying a prayer, walking an aisle, shaking a preacher's hand, and getting dunked. Being a Christian is about more than just escaping the flames of hell so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's part of it. But being a Christian is about radical reorientation of our lives and a reordering of our affections to be the kinds of people that God created us to be, both now and in eternity. The Bible describes for us in some stark contrasts what it means to be lost and what it means to be saved. And I just wrote down a few of them. You were dead in sin, but now you were made alive in Christ. You were enemies of God, but now you are His adopted children. You were held captive in the dominion of darkness, but now you have become citizens in the kingdom of light. You were far away from God, but now you've been brought near. You have been crucified with Christ to the old sins and selfishness, and now you are alive in Christ. In fact, you're not even the one who's living anymore, but Christ Jesus lives through you. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, with the very blood of Jesus. You belong to Him now and should glorify God in your body. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, Jesus gave us this great definition of what it means to be His disciple. He said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, will save it. Have you done that? Have you denied yourself? Have you taken up the cross of discipleship to follow after Jesus? Jesus didn't die on a cross just so you could go to heaven after you die. He did do that, but also so that you could live now as a citizen of God's kingdom. As David reminded us in Sunday school this morning, it's not just your, your will be done and your kingdom come in heaven, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just worry about how we're going to be after we die in heaven. Jesus has saved us to live a heavenly life now on the earth. Jesus came to make disciples. It's not about being an adherent to a religion. It's about having a living relationship with your Creator God. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning? Have you surrendered your life to Him? Are you following your ways, the world's ways? Or have you turned from that, repented from that, and chosen to follow in the ways of Jesus Christ? If you have any doubt this morning that you've been born again as a child of God, if you have any questions that whether you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or not, I tell you now is the day of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation for you. 
in your heart right now. I just want to ask you this. Everybody just, just bow your heads and close your eyes. We don't do this very often. But I just want to ask you right now to consider, where do you stand with God? Maybe this morning you realize that you don't know Jesus. You might even be a member of this church. Maybe you've been coming to this church all your life. But you know in your heart of hearts you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus. And you've got a little bit of doubt that if you were to die today, where you'd spend eternity. Not because of your behavior. Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. But because you just know that you've never really given your life to Jesus Christ. Right now, I invite you to confess to Jesus your need for Him. That you're a sinner. That you've been relying on yourself instead of His grace. That you are far from God. You've been walking your own way. You've been following after the world's priorities. Just right now, tell God that you want to turn from all of that. That you choose to lay it all down so that you can follow Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Ask Him to give you a fresh start. And trust your life to Jesus for now and eternity. Receive His grace and become a child of God. Do that right now in your heart. Thank Jesus for dying for your sins and rising from the grave. Thank Him for giving you His Holy Spirit to help you live for Him daily. And if right now you've prayed and you've just said something along those lines, you've said, I'm a sinner, God. I've been doing this my own way. I have not trusted in you for forgiveness. Forgive me now. I trust you now. Save me. I want to follow you, Jesus. If you've prayed that right now for the first time, then later in this service... We're going to stand and we're going to sing and I invite you to come and to make that decision public because guess what? If we're going to be a new creation in Christ, if we're going to follow Jesus into a dark and hostile world, we can't do it privately. And we can't do it alone. You need to publicly confess your relationship with Jesus Christ and have the support and the prayers of this church. So I invite you here in a little while as we stand and sing at the end of this message to do just that this morning. You can look up now. We need to answer the call first to be a disciple. We can't be a witness for Jesus if we don't know Jesus, right? We have to know Him and follow Him first. But secondly, we have to answer the call to make disciples. Once we know we're saved and we're following Jesus ourselves, it's then our job to make more disciples for Jesus. I mean, the only reason that God leaves us on this earth after we give our lives to Jesus Christ, the only reason He doesn't just snatch us up to heaven right then and there, is He has a job for us to do. We are to be His witnesses so we can make more followers of Jesus like ourselves. Let's read together now in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul's saying we are refocusing. We used to look and think this way, but we're changing. We're refocusing our perspective a different way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled us. That means that he made right our relationship with him. We're reconciled. We're okay, we're cleared, we're good with God. We are reconciled to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry 
of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So once you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you're made right with God, He no longer counts your sins against you. You're forgiven. He, he, he looks away. Your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God, but then He gives us that message to share with others. He gives us that ministry of making sure that people are made right with God. He gives that to us. That is to be our job. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That's the ministry that God has given us as Christians. We become ambassadors for Christ. We represent Him to those around us that are lost, that are far from God. And we allow God to make His appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Is there a better message you could take anybody than that verse right there? That's amazing. He who knew no sin, the perfect sinless Son of God, became sin for you and me. That in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of David Lambert. (coughs) Not the righteousness of Billy Graham. Not the righteousness of Matt Ward. Not the righteousness of you name it. The righteousness of God. Now that's righteous, amen? As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For He says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And so now is the day that we need to tell that good news. We have been reconciled to God so that He could entrust to us the ministry of of reconciliation. Now, you think about this. When you become a citizen of God's kingdom, you immediately, you immediately become an ambassador. Now, could you imagine somebody coming over to this country and going through the proper channels, becoming a citizen, and then we say, okay, what country are you from? Great. We're going to make you an ambassador and send you back to that country so that you can bring over more people. That's, what, that's how the kingdom of God works. That's how the kingdom of God works. We come into the kingdom of God. We are made citizens of God's kingdom. And he immediately says, you're my ambassador. I want you to go back to all of your lost family and friends and tell them about me so they can become citizens of this kingdom too. And then when they do, he makes them ambassadors. And he makes them ambassadors. And it multiplies and it grows. That's how the church went from a band of 12 men to over, what, 2, 3 billion people? I think currently right now, and and you think about throughout the past 2,000 years, how many millions and billions of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ? That's how it works. You aren't just saved so you can sit around and wait till you die and go to heaven. You were saved to go back into this world that Jesus has saved you from to tell them the good news. He gives you the light and He sends you running back out into the darkness to shine that light for Him. Now, how do we do this? How do we make disciples? I want to share with you two things this morning. There's a lot we could talk about here. But I want to share with you two concepts this morning. The first one is gospel conversations. Gospel conversations. 
Now, if the fullest and best understanding of what it means to be a witness is to make disciples, if that's the end goal, not just getting people saved, but helping them to be disciples, then does our witness end when they pray to receive Jesus? No. Our witness to that person doesn't end. Our goal in witnessing is not just their salvation, it's that they would continue to grow spiritually as disciples. So we begin by witnessing to the lost. We share the gospel with them so they can become disciples of Jesus. But once they give their lives to Christ, we still need to bear witness to them to the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. We need to have gospel conversations with Christians as well as with lost people. We need, as believers, people in our lives whom, for, for whom we are modeling what it looks like to be an apprentice of Jesus, who believes the truth of Jesus, who walks in the way of Jesus, who lives by the life of Jesus. And that means that when we make a mistake and we sin and we ask God for forgiveness, we show them what that looks like too, doesn't it? It doesn't mean you've got it figured out. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're real. It means you're transparent. It means you show them the struggles of the journey, not just the good times. This is what Jesus meant when he said in the Great Commission, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Making disciples begins with their salvation, but it continues through their life. And we do life together with them. We walk with them on that journey. So rather than just thinking of walking a lost person through a witnessing track, or, or just you know inviting them to, to church, and those are good things, we, we need to refocus our vision of witnessing on having gospel conversations with people who are lost and with people who are fellow believers, especially those who are younger in the faith than us, those who are spiritually mature, those who are struggling. Maybe they've wandered from the faith. Maybe they've grown cold in their walk. They're, they're not coming to church. They're not involved in things as they should. We need those people that we can speak into their lives. Now, John chapter 4, if you'll turn with me there, it gives us a great example of what a gospel conversation can look like. And in this story, Jesus is hot, and he's thirsty, and he's tired, and it's lunchtime, and they're in Samaria, which the disciples already can't believe they've gone into Samaria. So Jesus sends them into the Samaritan town to get lunch. They reluctantly go, because Jews and Samaritans did not get along, they did not like each other at all, sort of like Georgia fans and Bama fans. You know, so it'd be like having to go to Tuscaloosa. Nobody wants to do that. So he sends them in to get lunch, and he sits down under a shade tree at this well, and out comes this Samaritan woman to get water. Now, the fact she's alone in the middle of the day automatically tells Jesus there's something different about this woman. She's, she's not on the inside crowd. She's been ostracized. Maybe she's got a bad reputation. There's something going on in her life that, uh, that, that, that she has some needs and Jesus surprises her by engaging her in conversation. Again, something a Jewish rabbi would never do with a Samaritan woman. So look with me at the verse 7 in chapter 4. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, hey, Will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You know, why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him... And he would have given you living water. So already right there, Jesus is taking this conversation in a very spiritual direction. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and, and also his sons and his flocks and herds? 
And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. I mean, this just got real. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where must worship is in Jerusalem. And then Jesus gives her the exchange we read last week where he talks about, hey, it doesn't matter where you worship. What matters is who you worship. And God is spirit. He wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. About that time, the disciples come back. The woman rushes off in such a hurry, she leaves her water jar there. And she ran back to that town to tell everyone, all these people who thought that they were better than her, all these people who wouldn't give her the time of day, she goes to them and tells them to come with her to meet the Messiah. And they do, and many people believe in Jesus. Now I want to just make a few observations from this exchange things that will apply to us as we try to have gospel conversations with folks. The first is that Jesus took the time to get to know this woman. And he genuinely cared about her. And she could tell. When we witness to someone, we need to witness with hearts of compassion for those that God brings into our paths. You know, it's like the old saying says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People need to know you care about them. Secondly, Jesus didn't preach at this woman. This wasn't a monologue. This was a dialogue. It was a conversation. You don't need to go preach at people. Engage them in conversation. Listen as much as you talk. Third, Jesus was intentional in this conversation. This was a gospel conversation. They weren't just talking about the weather. They weren't just talking about the big game. A conversation is only a gospel conversation... If we talk about the gospel, right? <laughs> right? I mean, that, that just kind of makes sense. That doesn't mean that every conversation necessarily has to end with the plan of salvation. But every gospel conversation needs to be saturated with the gospel. and needs to point people to Jesus. And our hope is that we will then have that opportunity, maybe not in that conversation, but in a later conversation, to share with them the plan of salvation, how they can have the hope that you have, how they can know the Jesus that you know, how they can experience the freedom of forgiveness and the power of transformation that is found only in Christ. And for that, there are some great resources here on, on either end of the platform and in the vestibule. I've got some great resources here. It's called the uh, Three Circles Life Conversation Guide. And it, it's conversation guide. This isn't just something you hand to somebody and walk away. It's not something necessarily even just sit there and read through with somebody. It's something that you can easily learn that can guide you in how to take any conversation and take it to Jesus. So I invite you to pick these up. You can also find a great app for your phone that, that has the same thing on it. Um, you can, so you can go to the app store or whatever and, and find that. But this is a great resource that can help you. Also, just share your personal story. This is what Ben was talking about with that baseball card. How did you come to know Jesus? 
you were lost in sin. You had a point in your life where you realized you needed God's grace. And you, for, you confessed your sins and you gave your heart to Jesus. Tell somebody that story. Just tell them what you did. And say, do you want to do that? You don't have to quote all the Bible verses that go with that. Just share your story and invite them to join that story themselves. Another observation from this is that Jesus wasn't argumentative. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And Peter wrote, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. We have to become winsome if we want to win some, right? We can't be argumentative. We can't be pushy. Nobody was ever argued into the kingdom of God. And guess what? If you can argue someone into it, someone else can come and argue them the other direction, right? We're not here to argue people into the kingdom because you can argue with someone and win the argument but lose that soul. Lose that relationship and lose that opportunity to make a disciple with them. It's not about scoring points in a debate. Jesus was gentle with this woman. He addressed her concerns. He gave clear answers to her questions. Yes, he confronted her with her sinful condition, but he did it without being confrontational. You can confront someone with the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told the young preacher there, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So gospel conversations are kind. They involve us listening and learning as much as talking. They're gentle, hopeful conversations that trust the Lord to awaken that other person to their senses so they can trust in Jesus. And finally, notice that for Jesus, there was no one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. Jesus never approached any two people the same way. He never healed any two people the same way. He never again used this water from a well analogy to talk to someone. And if you look one chapter earlier at John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, Boy, that's as different a conversation between those two as you can get. Jesus varied his approach depending on the person. The gospel never changes, but our approach changes. So try to find some common ground with those you want to share Jesus with. Don't focus on how you're different. Don't focus on what you disagree about. Start with what you agree on and what you have in common. This is what Paul meant when he said, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means... I might save some. Or as Greg Laurie says in his book, Tell Someone, Jesus calls us to go fishing for men, and that means we use different kinds of bait for different kinds of fish. Now, when we look at the rate of baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention, how drastically they've declined, it's evident we've got a problem. And I think the problem is that we've stopped having gospel conversations. Churches have lost their intentionality when it comes to evangelism, and we need to change that. You know, we're in the fourth quarter, so to speak, because I think Christ is around the corner about to come back. And we need to get busy. And so the Southern Baptist Convention has challenged our churches to have one million gospel conversations this year. And I want our church to accept that challenge. Can you commit to having at least one gospel conversation a month? 
30, 31 days, 28 next month, I guess, can you in that time have one gospel conversation with somebody? It could be a friend, relative, neighbor, classmate, co-worker, perfect stranger. Will you imagine with me the harvest that God could bring if Southern Baptists can have a million gospel conversations this year? If we allowed His Spirit to speak through us in simple, ordinary ways. In your order of worship is a simple commitment card. And I invite you this morning to make that commitment, to say, you know what, I'm going to try. Now, does it mean, you know, you might say, well, David, I don't want to commit to that because what if I mess up? Well, you know what, if, if by signing that card and striving to have one gospel conversation a month, if you only end up having one more gospel conversation this year than you otherwise would have had, it's worth signing that card. Will you join me in that commitment? And here in just a little bit, when we sing, I'm going to invite you to come and lay that commitment card on this altar as a way of saying to God, I'm going to commit to stepping up my game. And I'm going to be intentional about having a way to have a gospel conversation with somebody once a month. Now, the last thing I want to say is that we need to have prayerful trust in the Spirit. Because at the center of every great evangelistic movement is a heart for prayer. Now, last year, we were introduced to the Pray for Every Home, where we are trying to pray for the 100 homes around ours. And I hope that you're still using that. If you're not, you can sign up, prayforeveryhome.com, and put in your address, and it will give you a list of the 100 people that live around you to pray for our neighbors. But we also need to pray for this audacious goal of Southern Baptists to have a million gospel conversations this year. We need to pray for our church's efforts to reach the lost to make disciples and pray for those that God has brought into our spheres of influence. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, we read a minute ago, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That means that we must pray for God, for His point of view, to give us His perspective on those around us, that we would look at the people we see every day through the eyes of Jesus. Every face you see is someone that God loves, that someone Jesus died for. We need to make... We need to ask God to make His appeal through us. It's not about you or me. It's not what we know. It's not what we can do. It's about us making ourselves available to let God speak through us. And finally, we need to pray and ask God to help us make the most of every moment. You know, God has given you a sphere of influence. He's given you open doors. Moments ready-made by God for you to share Jesus and make disciples. Pray for God to give you wisdom to give you creative insight, to know what your mission field might be. Have you identified your talents, your gifts, your interests? You know, my, my hope and prayer is that each of us could, could take how God has shaped us and we can create our own personal go-and-tell ministries. Maybe you like to garden. How can you leverage your gardening for the gospel? Maybe you can give the, 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 the produce you have away and share with people while you're giving them food. Maybe uh, you like to sew or knit or quilt. How can you leverage that for the gospel? Well, maybe, you know, that's a disappearing uh, craft. Maybe you can invite some younger women uh, to come and learn that from you, and in that relationship you can share the gospel with them. Maybe it's sports. Maybe you coach or you play or you're a parent of a kid on a team. How can you have a gospel conversation with somebody this year? out there on the, 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 the baseball field or the basketball court or the football field. Remember, Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. Not in a church, at the well. 
at a common place in that community. Now, what are the wells today? Walmart, the Chick-fil-A Play Place, the Beauty Salon. Where do you go that you can sit down with people who don't go to church and share with them Jesus? The other thing in your order of worship I want you to look at is the crossroads God. Evangelism happens at the crossroads. It's not just about our witness, but it's about praying. And I want to invite you to take this home with you and fill this thing out. This is for you to be intentional this year, to think of people that you know that you could be praying for, looking for opportunities to share a gospel conversation with them. There's a, a chart where you can track every day that you pray for the five people you list on this, on this side of the, of the paper. And on the back are some things to help you begin to identify and think about what your personal go-and-tell ministry might be. How can you begin to look for intentional ways to have gospel conversations with people? This isn't a game. This isn't just a gimmick. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. This baptistry does not get used anywhere nearly enough. And the answer to that is for us to begin to have gospel conversations and to pray for God to save the lost, disciple the saved, and send us all out to share the good news. We're about to stand and sing, and as we do, if earlier you prayed and you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and be standing right down over here to, the, to your right and just share with me that you've given your heart to Jesus and you want to be baptized. Maybe this morning you just say, this is where God wants us to serve and worship and, and, and begin to to be a witness for Him, we want to join this church, I'll be standing right over here. And for the rest of us, I invite you just to come and to lay that commitment card right here on the altar to say that I'm going to have gospel conversations this year. Would you stand? Would you sing? Would you come?